0: Alrighty, good morning. For those of you who wear glasses, I'm sure you can relate, every single time I take off my mask, it's like trying to defuse a bomb. It's like, is it going to go fine or are my glasses going to go flying? And then you add the mic into the mix and, and it's just, it's terrifying, honestly, it's terrifying. Um, all right, so we have our pew Bibles back in front of us, Yay. So uh, we are going to be on pages 728 through 729 in those pew Bibles in front of you. And as Stephen mentioned, um, part of my sermon text is not in the bulletin. So if you want to follow along, that will be in the book in front of you. Alrighty. So one of my favorite places to go when growing up was an amusement park in Jefferson, New Hampshire, called Santa's Village. Santa's Village. Their main operating dates are during the summer, obviously. Roller coasters and snow are not a very good mix. But they're open during some weekends in uh, fall and winter. But when you go during the summer, it can be a little weird because it's a Christmas-themed amusement park. There's Christmas music playing. There's Christmas elves there's Christmas rides, etc. cetera, during a non-Christmas time. And I don't know about you, but when I listen to Christmas music or if I do a Christmassy thing that's not in November or December, it just feels kind of weird to me. It's like going hunting for Easter eggs in, I don't know, December. It just, it just feels a little off. And there's a verse in our passage today that might give us kind of the same feeling because it's typically from a Christmas service but hearing it in the larger context of the book of Isaiah will help give us some clarity on it and will help expand upon it more. And that verse specifically is Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We normally hear that during a Christmas service, right? But this verse is part of Isaiah's larger prophecy to God's people one full of warning, instruction, and as we see here, hope. We know that the child that this verse is speaking of turns out to be Jesus, the Son of God. We also know that Jesus is God, as he says, among a lot of other things, I in the Father am one. does it get much more clearer than that. Therefore, the attributes that we hear here apply to Jesus, also apply to God the Father as well. And God the Spirit as well, our triune God, is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Those attributes aren't just of Jesus. But it's important that we know why God is called these things and how it should lead us to worship Him. But before we get into that, the best part about these attributes is that God is these things. He doesn't just feel these things. Our God is not like you and me, where some days we're feeling great, we're feeling kind, we're feeling merciful, and then the next day, maybe if we don't have our coffee, we're mean, we're a little short-tempered, etc. We change with the wind. God is not like that. God is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, now and always. And He's these attributes, whether we feel like He is or not. He is a wonderful counselor, even when we don't obey His teachings. He is a mighty God, even when we don't think He's in control. He is a Prince of Peace, even though our world may be crumbling around us. And He is an everlasting Father, even when we run from home. And that's a lesson that God's people had to learn back in Isaiah's time as well. So we'll see in today's passage that Judah, which is God's people, have gone against God by not trusting in Him. So they will be brought low, but God has zeal, to give them salvation, and to save them, and now all who believe for himself. This is an idea about God's remnant, a people that God has chosen for himself and protects for himself. Ultimately, the big idea of my sermon today is that we'll see God's response to his unfaithful people and how he plans on redeeming them, and we'll see that through him being a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So first, we're going to talk about how God is a mighty God. And for this first attribute, like Stephen mentioned, we're going to be re-looking at last week's text uh, to get the proper context that we need moving forward. That text is not in your bulletin. It's in the pew Bibles in front of you. And before you, before you ask, no, this was not a conspiracy to get you guys to open the pew Bibles in front of you. This is a genuine mistake uh, that, that Stephen and I made. But now we get to open those Bibles again, and that's great. So, let's remind ourselves of what's happening here. Last week in Stephen's sermon, we learned that the leader of Judah, a man named Ahaz, was terrified of an invasion by Israel and Syria. God told him not to be afraid of that invasion. He said, I'll take care of you, don't worry about it. But Ahaz and the nation of Judah didn't really believe God, and they made a shaky alliance with a third nation, Assyria. Syria with the A in front of it, Syria. Now, that wasn't a very smart thing to do because Syria is a much bigger threat than Israel and Syria. A great description or a great uh, example that I heard was if a mouse was being threatened by a rat and decided to make an alliance with an alley cat. The alley cat is far greater threat to the mouse than the rat is, especially if God is telling you, don't worry about the rat. But either way, that's what Ahaz does. Doesn't trust the Lord, makes that alliance. So Isaiah gives a prophecy of what's gonna happen during this attack. First, Assyria will attack Israel and Syria and therefore save Judah. Great. But Judah will gloat over their destruction. Not so great. Then Assyria will attack Judah, proving that the alliance wasn't very steady. Assyria will almost completely destroy Judah, but will leave Jerusalem, which is the capital, undestroyed. Then Assyria itself will be destroyed. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. How did you get that from this prophecy? I'm reading through these texts, and I don't see that anywhere. So let's break it down, and let's reread part of last week's text, like I said. Uh, once again, that is on pages 728. So first, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Isaiah says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Shalal Hasbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So God commands Isaiah to have a son, which will be a living testament to God's faithfulness. The son's name shall be Shalal Hasbaz, which roughly translates to the speed spoils, the prey hastens, or more simply, quickly to the plunder. Essentially, this is referring to the quick destruction of Syria and Israel by the Assyrians, and then the near complete destruction of Judah, and finally the destruction of Assyria itself. Long story short, this child is to be named after the event that's about to happen. God says that before this son can even speak, is normally around 6 to 12 months, give or take, this will happen. God says, I will do this within 6 to 12 months. So not only is God giving this prophecy through Isaiah, but he's also doubling down by saying that this will happen within a certain time frame. But also consider this, this son is named after this upcoming event. If God were to somehow not do this, if this upcoming event were somehow not to happen, then this son would live as a testament to God's unfaithfulness. Every single time the people of Judah would see this son from adolescence to adulthood, they would remember how God failed them. But if God were to do this, every single time they would see this son from adolescence to adulthood, they would be reminded of God's faithfulness. So there's a lot writing on this. But God is God. He's a mighty God. That's what we're learning from this section. Our God is sovereign and mighty. What he he says will come to pass. There is zero doubt. All of God's prophecies come true. You can bet on God. You can double down on God. You can even name a child after God's faithfulness and never be disappointed or abandoned. Read on with me in verses 5 through 8. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over resin and the son of Raham. Man, these names. That's okay. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against him the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all of his glory. And it will rise over the channels and go over all of its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel." So this is the section where God is describing what's going to happen to Judah. As I mentioned before. So God's people refused the the calm waters, which he says in that first verse. That represents the gentleness of God's faithfulness. So the people of Judah refused that and instead made an alliance with Assyria to destroy the other nations. They will rejoice over the destruction of Syria and Israel. And we see that where Syria's king Rezin is named. We see that in the second verse there. God will bring Assyria to attack Judah like a flood and it will rise up to the neck. That is, it will almost completely submerge them. It will almost completely destroy them. But God will preserve the head, that is, Jerusalem, the capital. And there's something really interesting here to note at the very end. Assyria will almost completely destroy Judah, but Jerusalem will just barely escape. But that city in that last verse is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. They didn't decide to change the name of the city, but that's what God is calling that city, Emmanuel, God with us. God will bring punishment and destruction to Judah, but will preserve a remnant for himself, but will preserve a people for himself. Hold on to that idea because we'll see more of that in the upcoming verses. So God knows about this upcoming destruction because he's sovereign. He orchestrated it. He's given a prophecy of it. He is God. And to prove it to us, to prove it to Isaiah, to prove it to Ahaz, to prove it to the entire nation of Judah, he's telling Isaiah to have a son and name him after this upcoming event. Now think of how this looks like to the people of Judah. There were two massive armies that are about to attack them. They made a shaky alliance with a third army. Things are not looking too great. Seems impossible to overcome. Imagine if the U.S. was about to be attacked by China and Russia, and then the U.K. was waiting in the wings with some massive nukes. It, it wouldn't look very good. It would feel hopeless. But our God is a mighty God. It doesn't matter if these soldiers have 10 soldiers or 10 million soldiers. They mean nothing against the will of God. Our God is mighty. That's who he is. What God wills is what happens. Later in the book of Isaiah, God says it this way, when I act, who can reverse it? God literally writes all of history, bends the will of man, and holds the world in his hands there was nothing anyone can say or do to go against his will. A fun example that I heard of this is imagining a child with a water gun trying to take over the country of Spain. It's it's not happening. It's, It's just not going to happen. So since we know all that about God, why might we not want to trust him? Why might The nation of Judah not want to trust him and instead make a shaky alliance with another nation, thinking that they can protect him. Why might we decide that the fickle might of man is more appealing to us than the might of God? Is it because the might of man can seem more flattering to us? Does it make us feel more prideful knowing that we can win a victory by how many more horses we have or how many more guns we have. Makes us think we're more in control. But we need to have a perspective of faith. That's what God is trying to teach His people here. Psalm 20 writes from this example, this is an awesome verse, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the Lord because He is more mighty than any army. Because he is sovereign and his will cannot be escaped. If God says you'll win the battle, then you'll win that battle. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We see plenty of stories in the Old Testament of God telling his people, you'll win this battle, don't be afraid. And instead they doubt him. The truest form of might is having no competition at all. And that's our God. That's our mighty God. God. Next up, we're going to see how our God is a prince of peace. A prince of peace. And we're going to start in the verses that are in the bulletin, starting in verse 9. So God promised destruction for the nations that are about to attack uh, Judah. Right? And he even promises that Judah itself is going to be attacked, but that Jerusalem, the capital, will will be fine. They'll escape. They'll barely escape, but they'll escape nonetheless. A remnant of Judah will be saved. And therefore, the people of that remnant don't have to be afraid. Read the first few verses with me, verses 9 through 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all you fall countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Jerusalem, the remnant of Judah that will be saved from this upcoming destruction, they don't have anything to fear. They are called Emmanuel, God with us, which we see again in that final verse there. Even though everything around them may fall and it will fall, it's been prophesied to fall, they will escape and God's people will survive. So these verses that we just read are coming from God's people to whomever might want to attack them. The attackers may strap on plenty of armor, they can take counsel together, they can say whatever they want, but none of it will stand because, not because we have more horses than them, not because we have more chariots than them, but because in that final verse, God is with us. That's what they're staking that on. Can you imagine having that tremendous peace To know that even though the enemy has leagues and leagues of soldiers with armor, and they will counsel together to decide the very best form of attack, they aren't just blitzing us, right? They're thinking about it. They're planning it. And yet none of it will stand. With all of that against them, all they need to say is simply, God is with us. It's tremendous peace. Just as God's people in Jerusalem knew peace when they heard this and they know that nothing will overtake them, today God's church knows that nothing will overtake us. That gives us tremendous peace. Later in the Gospels, Jesus tells Peter, On this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So not only will the enemies of the world never be able to overtake the church, but even the gates of hell, the enemies of hell, will not be able to overtake the church. Now, when I mention church, I don't just mean this building and this congregation. It's not like God chooses a favorite church congregation and says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you, but you, not so much. No, when I mention church, I mention uppercase C church. God's church across the entire globe in which we are just a section of it that just happened to live in this area. This is really important because this idea has often been really muddled down. Is that a phrase? Muddled down? Watered down. Being saved, being part of a true church has nothing to do with your location on Sunday morning. It has nothing to do with how many good works you do. Where you go on Sunday and the good works you do are a result of being part of the church. They are a result of being of having a saving faith. They don't cause that saving faith. You can't put the cart before the horse, and you cannot put church attendance and good works ahead of saving faith. But if that doesn't save us, if church attendance or good works doesn't save us, then what does? The Bible puts it just about as plainly as it can get. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the word says. Christ died for our sins, our transgressions on the cross. Then he rose from the grave three days later so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. That is what Christ's true church is known for. It's faith. That's why Paul says, literally, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what they're known for. So what is this building that we're in now? Why do we gather on Sunday morning? We gather, we do this every week to nurture and to care for our faith. That's why I'm up here talking right now. That's why the band plays music, to nurture and care for our faith by learning more about God and worshiping Him together. If you would like to know more about the saving faith in Christ's sacrifice for us, this is something that's really, really important. It is. Stephen or I would love to talk to you after the service if you would like to know more about that, if you would like to know more about our God. So that faith in which the true church is known for, that faith is fostered by the Prince of Peace. And when it's fostered by the Prince of Peace, that makes faith easy. Now, I saw a lot of your faces. Hold on, Neil. Faith is not easy. But when we realize that the mighty God of peace is watching over us and has promised that we will not be overcome even by the gates of hell, then faith and peace are easy to come by. They are given to us by him. Everything that Christ says in his word is given to us so that we may have peace in him. Every single word. And that's why he says, and I quote, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what Christ says. That's why it's important to have our Bibles and the purex in front of us. That's why if you don't have a Bible, please take a free one. Or talk to Stephen about getting a a nicer one. That's why it's important to have a Bible, because those words give you peace. They foster your faith. So take heart. Take heart, be encouraged, because our God is a God of peace. In the next few verses, in the next section, we'll see how our God is a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. He doesn't just give us peace or faith, but he tells us how to live by faith. He gives us good and wonderful advice, life changing advice. So, read with me first verses 11 through 13, where the Lord tells us how to live by faith. How to live by faith. First up, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy what all these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now first, we see a wonderful, beautiful picture of God as a wonderful counselor. He speaks to us with his strong hand upon us, not in a striking motion, not in an aggressive like push or something, but as a loving father guiding us where to walk. His hand is upon us to warn us. There's often nothing more loving than to warn someone. And these warnings are for our hearts, our souls, and our minds, that we are able to live in peace under his mighty hand. Now, what is this wonderful counsel that the wonderful counselor gives to us? Look at what God tells his people not to do. He says not to call conspiracy what others call conspiracy, not to fear what others fear or to have dread. Instead, we should fear God. Essentially, don't fear what the people of the world fear. Don't fear chariots and horses when you have the name of the Lord your God on your side. Your God is mighty and peaceful. He is a wonderful counselor, eternal father, prince of peace. If anything, fear him. Jesus echoes this statement when he says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So let's work through this idea of not living in fear in an example that the Lord gives here, Conspiracy. Because let's be honest, you and me here today, we don't have to really worry about horses and chariots. I'm grateful that we can worship together freely, that we have the freedom to do that in America without having the door slammed down. But other Christians in other parts of the world, they don't have that luxury. So what about us in America? What do we have to fear in America? It can be really easy for us to fear here in America. We hear all the time new things to fear here in America. It's so easy to fall into dread, especially in a year like 2020 with the pandemic. If we hear something that the government is telling us it might be a lie, or we might hear that there's a massive big business or political conspiracy, that shouldn't really affect our devotion to God. It shouldn't. It doesn't change the fact that we are called to speak truth and to not give false witness. If we don't know something for sure, then we shouldn't say it. Hearsay does not promote truth. And we know, as God's people, that sometimes the truth doesn't really align with our biases. And that's okay. It doesn't change the fact that we are called to love our neighbors. If our neighbors hear from us more about a different enemy scheme or conspiracy, what does that say about our trust in God? Right? they hear more about bad news or politics from us rather than the love that we have for our God and His love for us? What does that tell them about how much we trust in God? It it tells them that we trust in politics more than our God. If any fear about bad news, hearsay or not, can disrupt our trust in God, then maybe our trust in God might not be very strong. That's what the Lord is getting at here. Do not let every enemy scheme, true or not, rock your boat and send you into fear and dread. Because you have a solid foundation in the Lord. He is our Prince of Peace. You don't need to fear what others fear. That's the counsel that he's giving us here. And I I, want to get specific. But I say this with a heavy heart and I say this with a lot of love. Because right now in America, it's so easy with the news and what everyone's saying to throw us into fear and to distrust our God. Will Republicans or Democrats destroy this country if they get a majority of power? Even if they could, God would still be in control and we would still be in His hands. We don't need to fear what happens on Capitol Hill. We fear the Lord rather than man, and we know that our ultimate citizenship is as people of God's kingdom. We know that we will be with God forever, no matter what our passport says. What about the pandemic? Is the vaccine unsafe? We know that even if it kills us, we will be with our God forever. So we trust those that he has put in authority to make it and to approve it. We trust the wisdom that he has given the scientists. And we just trust in him. We don't fear what other people fear. We don't let the news rock our boat. We trust in him. What about what happened in January? Was the election stolen? God tells us that he ultimately puts people in power, not us. His will is sovereign, not ours. So we vote. We have the freedom to vote. Praise God for that. We vote, and then we step back and we trust God to decide. Because we know He knows what's best for us. We respect and we submit those who He has put in authority. Remember what we read earlier. The enemy will take counsel together, but it will come to nothing because God is with us. Even if the election was stolen, even if the vaccine is unsafe, even if our government crumbles, we are still safe because God is with us. We are His church. We are Emmanuel. We trust that more than horses and chariots of this world. We don't fear what the world fears, but we fear God instead. And not fearing what other people think or what other people say, that doesn't mean going around making foolish decisions that could get you or others hurt. Fearing God more than the world means making obeying Him your top priority. It doesn't mean I can say whatever I want because I don't fear people. No, that, 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 that's not loving. It means being careful with your words because you represent the Lord your God who warns you of the dangers of a loose tongue. It means loving your neighbor, considering them as greater than yourself. You do what you can to make them comfortable. That's why we're wearing masks today. We understand them. We truly love them. No matter what race they are, no matter what country they're from, or how much money they make, those qualifiers don't affect how God loves us. So why should it affect how we love them? It means when you recognize a sin in your life that you need to repent of, you repent of it because you feel when the Lord tells you that sin separates yourself from Him. It's a big deal. He tells us these things because He's our wonderful counselor. We can't have faith in Him and then not obey His teachings. We can't have faith in Him only when it's convenient for us. We need to have faith in Him every single step of the way and obey his teachings every single step of the way. There's a really important line in the last line of this section. The Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. That's in that final verse there. Regarding the Lord as holy means regarding him as perfect. As perfectly truthful, perfectly loving, perfectly powerful. When he says something, you believe it. When he tells you not to do something... You don't do it because you believe when he warns you with his loving hand. You believe he's a wonderful counselor whose counsel is good and true. So what do we regard as holy in our lives? What do we instantly believe without any question or thought? Who do we think is absolutely perfect? Is it God or is it man? Ultimately, when it comes to living by faith and fearing the Lord, think in every single situation, am I fearing Lord or am I fearing man? Am I trusting in horses and chariots or am I trusting in the Lord? Am I loving others as He loved me? Am I doing my best to trust in Him? Then pray to our Lord for help because He is our wonderful, loving Father. Next, in verses 14 through 22, we'll see about what God says not living by faith looks like. Starting in verse 14, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal up the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Listen here. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? So they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Okay, there's there's a lot happening here, I know. There's a lot happening here. But the overall message and charge here is important. This is still counsel from our wonderful counselor. First, we see that the Lord is a sanctuary to those who are under his protection and in his people. That nicely fits into our Prince of Peace section from before, right? That's why we don't have to fear what others fear. Because he is our sanctuary. But then we see the Lord described as a stumbling block, a snare, even a trap. What's that about? This is not a completely new idea. This is just not just a one-off verse in the Bible that we can ignore because we don't like it. Paul also writes that many in Israel did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So for those who believe in God, he's a sanctuary to them. But for those who don't have faith in God, he will become an obstacle to them, a stumbling block. And this is not just an inconvenience type obstacle, right? Not just something we can jump over or awkwardly sidestep. No, no, no. Look at verses 21 and 22. If you do not put your faith in God, you will be hungry. You will hungry. You will be hungry for peace, for protection, for love. That hunger will only lead to anger at others in God: anguish, and then eventually, darkness, thick darkness. Just like a small child looking for something to eat, we are all hungry. His loving father, the small child who's so hungry, his loving father tells him, there's a fridge full of delicious food for you. But the child says, no, I'm going to dig through this trash bin and eat rotten apple cores, crumbs, and expired produce. Look at what God is describing here. Look at verses 19 and 20. Instead of turning to their loving father, these people turn to necromancers and mediums they turn to people who claim to speak to the dead. These people are looking to speak to the dead instead of their loving God, instead of their living God. They're going through the trash. And I know it's easy for us to feel different, like this doesn't apply to us. As thankfully, we don't really have a necromancy problem here in America. America. But we do give dead things of this world far more influence over us than the living word of God. We regard the things of the world as holy, imperfect and, and truthful rather than our God. When you have a question about something, when a crisis comes up, what does your mind go to first? Do you think I can I should just consult social media. I should see what my friends are saying. Or do you pray and consult the living God? Do you pray to the Lord for wisdom? Or do you consult some worldly wisdom that won't even stand the test of time? Our world today doesn't have necromancy as its main issue, but we still struggle with listening with worldly sources more than godly ones. It's digging through the trash compared to a wonderful fridge full of truth. These sources, these worldly sources, are more concerned with fueling outrage rage pridefulness narcissism and harshness dead things rather than living gentleness humility and love you know what i'm talking about just like food from a trash bin those news sources those things on social media they don't make you feel good it's not good for your soul And to be completely honest with you, it doesn't inspire you to grow your faith in God and inspires you to sin. If what you listen to, if what you read on a daily basis doesn't give you more love for your neighbor, don't listen to it. You don't need it. Don't listen to something that is here today, gone tomorrow, and fills you with the gloom of anguish, as our text says. Your hunger for justice, your hunger for truth, your hunger for meaning can only be found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Stop rummaging through the trash can for food when our God has a beautiful fridge full of wisdom, meaning, and love. And I know this is tough to hear. I, I, I know. I, I read through the Bible. And I read things that I should be doing. I read about the dangers of a loose tongue. I read about the dangers of pride. And I don't like it because those are things that I struggle with every day. But we can't have faith in our God only when it's nice and convenient for us. We can't trust in him for peace and for deliverance and then not listen to his counsel. That's silly. He's our loving father. He's our everlasting father. Now with all that build up, we come to our Christmas passage and we see the Lord as our everlasting father. We just heard how for those who put their faith in the Lord, they will have peace and they will not fear what others fear and they will have faith. And those who do not have faith will stumble into the darkness. But what about those who do have faith? What about those of us that put our trust in the Lord, but yet bad things still happen? When we get sick, when a family member dies, when churches are shut down, when work is tough, what hope is there in that? Let's look at verses 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But there was no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they devoid the spile. Divide the spoil. Ay, ay, ay. For the yoke of the burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you are broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle turmoil and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now we need to take a step back and remember the context of what's happening here, right? It's really good for a specific application, but we need to remember that this is written specifically for Judah. Through the prophet Isaiah. The Lord has brought contempt to the nation as he is allowing this attack. Because they would rather trust in Assyria than trust in their God. This will cast their land into a deep darkness as we see in this text. But those who live in that deep darkness will have an amazing light shown on them. This light will multiply the nation. It will increase their joy. A joy that's comparable to a a feast. Right? That's what we see here. This joy will come as a burden is lifted, the rod in the staff of the oppressor is broken, and the debris from the battle can be burned, which signifies a new start. This bright light will shine into the future, to future generations, and will truly signify a new age for the people of God. What is this bright light? What is this hope? Let's finish up with verses six through seven. This is where we see our God as an everlasting Father. Through the darkest time, the Lord gives his people something greater than just another battle won. Greater than just simple wartime deliverance. No, he gives his people himself. He gives them of himself. This is the final form of Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the culmination of a people that know that God is with them. This is God now, literally, physically, with them a son. A son that will share all the immutable attributes of his father. He will have the government on his shoulder. He is sovereign and mighty. He will reign forever. He will be everlasting. He will establish and uphold the throne with justice and righteousness. He has the wisdom of a counselor and there will be peace under his rule. This son, this child is the Messiah. The foretold Messiah that the people of God have been waiting for. This Messiah is what their faith has been building towards. This is the final solution to the darkness of this sinful world. God himself come to dwell with his people. Notice how these attributes are a blend between a human quality and a godly one, as Christ is both 100% man and 100% God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The book of Colossians says it most beautifully. In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. But the Son of God did not just come to dwell with his people. He came to save his people. Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, even though he faced every single human temptation that you and me face today. Since he had no sin debt of his own, He could lovingly pay for ours with his own life. So what a great light this is. This is like finding out that instead of constantly fighting back debt payments every single day, you are no longer indebted. It has been paid now and forever, and you will never be in debt ever, ever again. It's not just another hill to cross. It's the end game. It's it. That is the gospel that we believe in. And that's our God that made it happen. That's what we celebrate on Easter next week. That's why we preach the word as it all comes down to his gospel. In this prophecy, it is said that God's people will see a great light. It is a light that starts in a manger near Jerusalem and will shine forth into the future for eternity to come. You and me right now are still basking in that light. It's the beginning of a new age, a new covenant between God and his people, a new bright future for those who have faith. And this light is not just for the people of Jerusalem. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is not just the light of surviving another battle, This is light of life, of victory over battle within the soul. And all of this, because our everlasting Father loves us and delights in the saving of His children, do not miss the last verse of this section. This is the most important verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Can you imagine a zealous father amazingly eager to save his children from wrongdoing, to save them from their debt. God isn't just cleaning up a mess that we made, begrudgingly going through it. No. He loves to save us. He loves to love us because he is our everlasting father, a sinless, perfect father. We don't ever have to doubt if our God loves us. He loves us. He loves us enough to save us from our sin and to make a way for us to be with Him forever. Only love can do that. John says it best when he writes in his book of the Bible, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God in so we are. That prophecy was a lot. A lot of things happened in there. In conclusion, remember that all of this started with Santa's village in Jefferson's, New Hampshire. I'm just kidding. This all started with Judah being threatened by Assyria in Syria and Israel to the point where they would be covered in darkness. But God uses the prophet Isaiah to lead his people to a larger truth. And now, being on the other end of that prophecy, we don't have to look at those verses about a child being born and wonder what on earth is God talking about. No, we're on the other side of that. We get to see that clearly. Clearly. Just like this one scenario of Judah being plunged into darkness by Assyria but God saving a remnant in Jerusalem, the whole world is devastated in darkness and sin, but God himself came down and saved his people by dying for their sins and then resurrecting 3 days later. We see in this prophecy the immutable attributes of God. Our God is a wonderful counselor. His counsel is good. He is a mighty God. His will is sovereign. He is an everlasting father. He loves us and has zeal to save us. And he is a prince of peace. And we can trust in him and not fear what other people of the world fear. Those attributes are part of his character, who he is. He will not deny himself. He will never not be one of those things. We see God portray these even in a prophecy to Judah. In a world still full of distractions, dangers, temptations, and tribulation, Sometimes it can be easy to go the route of having faith in the trash bin, necromancers, mediums, etc. It can be easy to have faith in them for satisfaction, for hunger, of peace and protection. But do not trust in chariots and do not trust in horses. Seeing who our God is, his character and his zealous love for us, how can we have faith in literally anything else? So let's end with the exhortation which echoes the Lord's wonderful counsel to us from earlier. Proverbs 3, 5-8 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that you are a mighty God and that your will is sovereign. We thank you so much that you are our prince of peace. You give us everlasting peace. We thank you so much for being an everlasting father who is zealous to save his children. And we praise your name that you are a wonderful counselor who gives us counsel that we can trust in and believe in. Lord, guide us to wisdom Guide us to love so that we can love others as you love us. Guide us to give, us the, to give you the worship that you deserve. In Christ's name, amen.